Well, 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 good afternoon, everybody. Man, it's good to be with all of you here this afternoon. Uh, you know, I, I know most of you in this room, perhaps everybody in this room, uh, you have had the experience at some point in your life uh, that there has been a particular series on television uh, that you have fallen in love with, right? And that all your friends are watching, everybody knows about it, you're watching too, and during its season where it's at its height, you build your entire life around showing up, right, when that TV series is going to be on, when that episode's going to be on. And if the series is fantastic, then you cannot miss an episode, right? And so what they do is they always start with kind of a little uh, preview of what happened last week, as though you don't know because you watch every week. And then they, at the end of each episode, right, they give you that little like coming next week and they show you some ridiculous thing that's going to happen, but they don't tell you all of it. And you're like, why a whole week, right? You, you felt that, you've experienced that. I, I remember multiple times. Remember when uh, uh, American Idol was cool? Remember that? Uh, way back when, like a decade and a half ago. Um, and like you would never miss anything because you're like, I want to know what happens next. And so there's always that. I will tell you that that has been my experience really probably for the last decade traveling through the scriptures from Genesis all the way through, but especially over the last couple of months as we've been working our way through the book of Romans. It is this incredible unfolding reality that God is revealing to us about who we are and who he is and how we relate and what that means to us. And every section of scripture that we encounter is like the next episode in a grand unfolding story. And when you're done with that passage, you're like, please, can we go on? And, and my privilege is that during the week, uh, I get to get a couple of weeks ahead. So I already know what episodes are coming your way and you don't. And I'm like, I hope you don't miss the next few episodes because they're incredible. Now, big picture real quick to remind you where we are. We've been traveling through the scriptures from Genesis all the way through. Uh, we have landed in our chronological journey in the book of Acts. We are with Paul uh, on his third missionary journey. And as we're traveling with Paul, whenever he stops to write a letter to a church on his journey, we stop and enter that letter, okay? And then we spend time with Paul through that letter. So right now, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome while he's on his third missionary journey. And he's writing that letter to Rome because he's planning to move his headquarters from Antioch, where he has been headquartered, to Rome because he is a Roman citizen. So he has some unique privileges being able to live in the city of Rome. And strategically, it makes sense to be in Rome at this time in history because the Roman Empire is expanding and the gospel can expand with that empire. So, so Paul is strategically looking at that going, I'm going to go live in Rome. I'm going to go headquarter in Rome. Now, Paul fairly recently over the last, say, two years has encountered the city of Corinth. He was there for 18 months discipling the people of Corinth. And then if you remember, if you know your scriptures at all, uh, he went on his third missionary journey and he got some word from people in Corinth that the church in Corinth was ridiculous and went nuts and forgot everything he taught him. And so he's had a lot of hassles with the church in Corinth, having to write 1 Corinthians then as far as we know, a second letter and then a third letter that we have access to called 2 Corinthians, uh, trying to correct a lot of insanity in the church in Corinth. So 
The reason he's writing the book of Romans is because he doesn't want to get to Rome, to a church there, and have to spend 18 months working through the intricacies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he writes a letter to that church, essentially the great summary of all of the redemptive work of God, so that they can read it with such beauty in its simplicity and yet such beauty in its complexity, so they can read it and Paul can arrive and say, did you read the letter? Yes, we read the letter. Okay, any questions about the letter? So he doesn't have to spend 18 months unpacking the details of the gospel. So you're with me so far on the larger context, right? Now, Paul is writing this letter, uh, the letter of Romans, into a church that is a combination of Jewish people and Gentile people. Why? Because remember, the Jewish people founded the church. Then they were kicked out of Jerusalem by the emperor for a couple of years. The Gentile people who had already been converted to Christianity had to lead the church. So they became the leaders. Then the Jewish people returned and now the leaders who were the leaders are with the leaders who are the leaders who now think they're the leaders with the leaders who were the leaders, right? And you can imagine how complex that got. And so Paul is writing into a scenario where you've got Jewish born people, you've got proselytes, people that were Gentile became Jewish and then as Jewish people, they became believers and followers of Jesus. And then you've got Gentiles who never were proselytes, never became Jewish first, but came to know Jesus. So those are the three categories into which Paul writes this letter. A Gentile Jewish category with both forms of Gentile. Here's why that's important. One, because it helps us understand the context of the letter and why Paul is intricately moving through. But two, because this letter is being written to a group of people that includes everybody, all of us. You, if you are here and you are human, you are either Jewish or Gentile, okay? If you are not Jewish or Gentile, you are not human. I'd love to talk to you afterwards and find out where you're from. Because if you were born on this planet by two other human parents, you are either Jewish or you are Gentile, which is very helpful because it means this letter was written to people just like us. And so it applies to us in a very unique way. Now, in Paul's writing of the book of Romans, we're covering a lot of quick ground to catch you up so that you understand the context we're in, right? And are reminded of it because we cannot move through this book in any one episode without understanding the episodes before. Big picture, season one, chapters 1 through 11. Season 2, chapters 12 to the end of Romans, okay? Season 1, God's mercy and grace is so mind-blowing, so freeing, so extraordinary, so beyond comprehension that if you get it, when you get it, your mind will be so blown, you won't know what to do with yourself. Chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 12, Therefore, in view of this extraordinary mercy, here's the invitation as to how you now should and can live, not because you have to, but because you get to and because you know what you know. And that's 12 onward. Dear brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, His mind-blowing mercy, let's do it. So where are we in the book of Romans? We are in the first season, chapters 1 through 11, and we have traveled through the first few chapters. Here's what we've learned so far. Chapters 1 and 2 and a half of 3, Paul speaks to the Gentiles, Gentiles and the Jews, and he shows them in such clarity that no matter who you are, if you are human and you were born from two human parents, then you are the recipient of a virus called sin. It has been passed down from every human to the other. It was first affected in the Garden of Eden by our ancestors, Adam and Eve. They chose uh, to do something that affected the human race and all of creation with sin. 
Sin is a force and its fruit is death. It wants you dead, me dead, us dead, everybody we love dead. It wants all of creation dead. And if it could, it would want God dead. And it is working actively, not passively, to affect our death and our destruction. And we are infected by that force, by that reality. We are people that are incapable of doing anything in of ourselves to undo our connection, our binding, our slavery to that reality, to to sin. Because just like a virus your body has that your immune system cannot beat, no matter what you do, how much you exercise, run, sweat, or sit in a sauna, that virus eats you alive until you get an outside source, like an antibiotic that's very powerful, you cannot win. And so we are those people. We cannot win against sin. Uh, And just as we sit in the middle of chapter three going, this is a disaster, God goes, so because you cannot win, I will win for you. I will win for you. And we discover in the middle of chapter three, the great redemptive work of Jesus and his coming, his living, his dying, his rising from the dead as a solution to our sin problem. And it is an extraordinary moment. Then from chapter three into chapter four and five, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins to unpack for us the implications and the reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to do what he did that we couldn't do it ourselves. And in essence, what he tells us in chapters four and five through a story about Abraham and his faith and our faith and and all that is this, that when we are born from two human parents, we are born tied in our ancestry to Adam and Eve. So we are in Adam uh, and, and, and with that. And because we're tied to Adam, we are the recipients of the world of Adam. We are the recipients of the virus sin. And he tells us in chapter five that essentially what God has done is that he has undone us from our tie to Adam. We are disconnected from that bondage and he has bound us now to himself so that we are tied to his kingdom, tied to his reality, tied to his future. That is what the great redemptive work of Jesus was about. Not a behavioral work, changing our behavior, but a positional change from who we were once tied to, belonging to, to who we now are tied to and belong to. So when you encounter the gospel and you come to know Jesus, then what is happening is you are positionally transferring from Adam to Christ. That positional transfer is a giant thing. Right after chapter five, when we realize we are positionally changed, the obvious question is, If my behavioral reality has no bearing on my positional reality, the way I behave doesn't affect who I belong to because I didn't do the work to belong to Jesus. He did the work. Then why shouldn't I behave any way I want? Isn't that a logical question? If behavior has no consequence to your eternal destiny, welcome to freedom. Go on. Go, go, buck wild. Do whatever you want. And that is a reality of the gospel, that you are that free in Christ, that behavior doesn't affect your eternality. That's a big deal. And so chapter six begins with that question. Well, if my sin helps God's grace look bigger, then why shouldn't I sin more? And if my sin no longer affects my eternal life, then why shouldn't I sin more? And what does he do in chapter six? He goes, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I I don't understand the question. Like, I don't understand how you could still ask a question like that. Why not? So you remember a couple weeks ago, if you were here, and if you weren't here, I'll give you a quick review, right? In the beginning of six, he said there are two kingdoms. 
There is the kingdom of this world. Remember, we had that little post over here with all the things. And then we had the kingdom of God. And you'll see on the slide as it pops up how those two things played out. The kingdom of this world, uh, it was in Adam. It was a kingdom of death. It had a capital. It was all that stuff. And if you didn't catch that, you can go podcast that. On the other side was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of freedom, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of Christ. And you have been transferred by no work of your own, by the grace and mercy of God, from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. And your question question for me is, why shouldn't I go live in death again? I mean, what kind of an idiot would do that, right? I am no longer in the kingdom of death, but because when I live like a fool in my sin, I make the kingdom of life look better. I should live like a fool. And Paul goes, what kind of a stupid question is that? You are now part of a kingdom of life. What would you like to produce in your life? Would you like to produce life or death? And then just as he says that, we realize in six, it starts sounding like your behavior affects your position, right? And then Paul goes, no, 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 no. Just in case you're thinking I'm saying, if you behave sinfully, then you're back to enslaved to sin. That's not what I'm saying. You still belong to Jesus. That's positional. That's his grace. But when you choose to sin, you choose to reconnect yourself temporarily to the master that was once your master and his agenda is affected in your temporal life, though, thank God, not in your eternal life, right? And so here's what he says. For the rest of six, he talks about behavior. Behavior still matters, not because you have to so that you can be right with God because you're right with God because of the mercy of God, the work of Jesus, but because you get to because you now know him. And why would you be foolish enough to literally tie yourself to a slave master who wants you dead? And he reminds us in chapter six, every time we live in ways opposed to God, it will, hear me now, it will produce death and destruction. Not immediately, not seemingly, because it oh feels so good. But it will every time, because that is the agenda of the slave master death, the slave master sin. And though you are not tied to sin, you are still affected by sin when you behave sinfully, even though it's temporarily and not eternally. Wow. So at the end of chapter six, which is where we find ourselves now, welcome to the introduction. We're done. Okay, here we go, right? At the end of chapter six, the next logical question for the audience that Paul is writing to is this. Okay, so, so let me get this straight. I belong to Jesus because of his mercy. And no matter how I behave, it cannot affect my position in Christ because that's his work. But when I behave foolishly, it can affect my temporal experience of life or death. So I will effectively affect death for me temporarily. And that's stupid. I get that. So then the next question is, how do I behave rightly? And how did we behave rightly before? Before Jesus, we behaved rightly by a system that governed us and told us what right behavior was. It was called the law, right? So the next question would be, what is our relationship with the law now that we are positionally in Christ? Is the law still useful? Do we still use it? Do we live by it? Should it govern us? How does that work? So there were two schools of thought during Paul's time in the Roman church by the Jewish people and those who knew the law. The first school of thought was the law is extremely useful and very important. It is still the system by which God governs his people. We are in Christ now. So for the first time, we actually have the capacity to live by the law. So let us live by the law like we never did before. And it births what we call a version of legalism. I live by the law in Christ because the law makes me righteous. You with me? 
The other school of thought was the law is the old way. It is completely useless. I'm free in Christ now, so I don't need a law any longer because I'm free in Christ. You with me? And so that births in its extreme form lawlessness. And just a reminder to all of you, lawlessness is uh, from the pit of hell. It is the enemy's way to create destruction. Ready for this? Legalism is from the pit of hell. It is the enemy's way to create destruction. Legalism is self-righteousness and it is opposed to God. Lawlessness is self-governance and it's opposed to God. Our safe space is submission to God, trusting his ways over ours and a relationship that leads to righteousness that creates freedom and life across the board. But how does that work in its relationship to the law specifically? That is where we are and what we're about to answer. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 7. We are going to explore Romans chapter 7, uh, going from verse 1 to verse 6 uh, today. So if you are using one of the Bibles we provide, we're on page 1044. We've been on page 1044 for like four months. We'll still be there probably for another three. So you gotta memorize that page number. Uh, but beyond that, if you're using a smart device or one of your own Bibles, uh, it is Romans chapter 7 verse 1, Romans 7 1. So Paul begins this way in Romans 7 1. Or do you not know, brothers? Now, when Paul uses a word like or, you need to pay attention to that word because what does that word do? It is a connective word. Therefore is a connective word. Because is a connective word. Likewise is a connective word. It connects one thought to another. Have you ever started a sentence with or without a thought before it? Or are you going to Disney? What? Or are you going to Disney today? What are you waiting for? What are you confused about? I've left something out, right? Because to use the word or means I said something before it and I'm saying, since I said this other thing, uh, or are you doing this? Or you could say this, this is true or do you not know that this is true? You with me? So the word or is a connective word which means that Paul is very intently connecting uh, chapter seven, verse one to the passage in chapter six. Remember also when these letters were written, they didn't have chapters and verses. So where we divide them as rightly as we can into chapters and verses, Paul's intent was not to start up at the end of six and restart in the beginning of seven. He's just writing a letter. And so he goes, remember, behavior matters because of who we are in Christ now, not because we have to behave rightly, but because we'd be idiots not to, right? And then he says this, or do you not know, brothers? What is it we do not know? For I am speaking to those who know the law. So there's our context again. He's speaking to the Jewish people who have studied the law, to the proselytes who have become Jewish first and now are believers with the Jews who have known the law, and to the Gentiles who did not become Jews first but became believers, who were they discipled by? The Jewish people or the proselytes, so they probably have a good handle on the law because the law was a big part uh, of the way that the Jewish people functioned in their behavior and relationship with God. And so he's saying, those of you that know and understand the law, this is who I'm talking to, because it was you who would have asked the question, since behavior does still matter, but not for position, just for freedom, then how do I behave rightly? Do I still live under the governance of the law? And should I still live by and abide by that law? That's what Paul's about to speak to. Look what he says here. Do you not know, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? 
Now that sounds like a complex statement that we need to unpack in deep and giant ways, but it's actually super simple. The law only applies to you until you're dead. When you die, you can't live by the law anymore. Do you know why not? Because you're dead, okay? So the good news is, while you live and breathe, you are obligated to the law, but once you die, your obligation to the law comes to an abrupt end, and then you stand before God for judgment, right? So it's like, at that point, the law no longer has a purpose for you. The purpose of the law has been, in all of its history until the time of Christ, to present or reveal to us what righteousness was to give us a sense of whether or not we are righteous. And in this case, it revealed to us we have the virus sin and we are unrighteous. And therefore it became our condemnation. And the law was to govern God's people under Adam. So while there was still an Adam before Jesus, before the transfer, the law was to govern them and reveal to them constantly that as it's governing them, they can't live up to it. You with me so far? And so the law had a purpose. And so the question is, does the law still apply to us in the same way it did before? Should we abide by it in the same way we did before? Is it still intended to have that relationship? And Paul goes, okay, let me start here. Remember that the law, you are only obligated to the law as long as you are alive. When you die, you are no longer obligated to the law because you're dead. Okay, now Paul figured, like me, he's kind of going, maybe they don't quite get that. I mean, I know it's simple, but you're like, what do you mean like dead, like when I die? And what obligation? So he uses an example. He just uses an example. Look at this. He says, okay, so for a married woman or man, you can exchange it either way. For a married person, woman or man, is bound to her husband wife while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So there is a person, they have gotten married, they are tied to this person they have made commitments to, right? Because they went to the person and, they, and before God they said things like, I will love you and live with you and then cherish you and all that stuff until what? Death does us part. So you are promising things to this person before God. What is it that binds you to that person? Well, death, yes, but the law, right? The law binds you to that person until death. But when that person dies, what are you released from? The law and that person, right? That person's dead. And the law which bound you to that person releases you from that person. And you are released from your obligation to that law. So he says this, when the person dies, they are released from that. Accordingly, verse three, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress, okay? Or he is not an adulteress if it's flipped the other way around. So essentially, here's what it's trying to say. Since we have VBS this week and we have such awesome props, I thought I'd use some props too, okay? Uh, so here, here's what we've got, okay? Uh, I am a person and I'm going along in my life and I see a beautiful woman that I fall in love with, right? And then I come along and I say, oh God, I want to, I want to bind myself to this beautiful woman primarily so that she can never get away, right? Because when she figures out who I am, she's gonna wanna run for her life. But we're gonna make this rock solid. Paul is not, remember, talking about marriage here that's not his intent. This is not an illustration of marriage about marriage. It's an illustration of marriage about our relationship with Adam, with Christ, and with the law. So do not think of this as Paul saying marriage is a slavery to a ball and chain. That is not what Paul's trying to say. He's simply saying that when you bind yourself to another by law, then the law binds you to that person. 
Are you married to the law? No. no. Are you obligated to the law? Yes. You're obligated to the law because you're married to this person and the law binds you. When are you released from this person? When they die, right? And what does your obligation to the law do once that person dies? It is released. You are no longer obligated to the law when the person dies because when death comes, your obligation to the law ends. And you are free to go and bind yourself to another without consequence because you are not obligated to the law that says if you bind yourself to another while you are married to this one, that is against the law and it is adultery, which is sin, which produces death. Now I'm free from all that and I can go bind myself again to another. You with me so far? This is not about marriage. This is about our relationship with Adam and God. So here is what he's saying. Take a look at this, okay? So now you understand how the law functions in its binding us to certain things. Now here's what we know. When we were bound to Adam because we were born human, right? When the law was given, the law showed us righteousness, it revealed righteousness. In so doing, it revealed our tie to Adam, our binding to Adam, the fact that we have a sin nature. And we were bound to Adam because we are born human and the law showed us that binding and the law condemned us because we were bound to what? Sin and death. The law also began to govern us to say, okay, you're bound to sin, but this is how you should live. So try to live up to it best you can so that the people of God look a little different than the rest of the planet. But in trying to live up to it, we constantly realized we looked a bit different, but ultimately nothing changed, right? And then something extraordinary happened. Here's what Paul's trying to say. Watch this. Likewise, verse four, up, oh, it's a connective word again, right? Likewise is a connective word. So he's saying, just like the illustration I just used, here's the truth that's just like the illustration. You with me? So the likewise is supposed to go, what I'm about to say is a direct application of what I just said in this illustration, okay? Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. This is a crazy statement. Take a look what he's saying. The law obligated you to righteousness, but you were unrighteous because you were married to... Adam, right? All of us. So what the law did is it obligated you to righteousness, but you were unrighteous married to Adam, so the law condemned you day in and day out, and your condemnation was very apparent. But don't you remember, he says, that through Christ's death and resurrection, you died to who? You died to Adam. You were undone from sin. You died to sin. And when you died to sin, just like when you die in life or you die in a marriage, right? What happened to the obligation the law held against you to be righteous? And if you weren't, you would be condemned. What happened to the obligation when you died to Adam and sin? Likewise, as in the marriage, when you died to Adam and were made alive in Christ, your obligation to righteousness was undone. Look, he's going to say it directly like that. Watch this. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law 
through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. So remember we said a couple weeks ago, one of the greatest beauties of God's grace is that he did not only set us free from sin and death, because if he had set us free from sin and death and left us unbound to anything and anyone, then we would be like Adam and Eve were in the beginning of their journey. With complete freedom, unbound either to God or to sin, they were free humans in relationship with God. And what did they choose? Did they choose God or did they choose disobedience? They chose disobedience. And through one transgression, they infected themselves and all of us with sin and death. If we were set free from sin and left to ourselves in our freedom, with one transgression, what would we do? We would tie ourselves back to sin. But here's what Christ actually did. He not only released us from the bondage that we had to Adam and to sin, but over here, we had a secondary option and that was Christ. And did we bind ourselves to Christ? No, we did not. He bound us to himself. So we are unbound from sin and we are bound now to righteousness. Not behaviorally, but positionally. This is a really big deal. Because this is a freedom beyond our wildest imaginations. Do you realize that you and I, if we know Jesus as Savior, are as bound to righteousness and freedom as we once were to sin and death? And our behavior is now a question mark. Since I'm bound to Christ, I'm in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. Then how should I behave? What am I obligated to? And we dealt with that in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And now he's saying in chapter 7, look, here's the deal. The law is no longer your obligation because you were undone from the law when you were unbound from Adam and you are now bound to Christ. So the question is, What governs us now? Is it the law again in a new way or is it something utterly other? And that is the grand question, isn't it? So let's take a look. I am now bound to Christ, uh, set free from Adam, bound to righteousness, to belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may, here's the beauty, ready? In order that we may do what? Bear the fruit of God. So, Our binding to Christ when we were unbound from Adam was not simply so that we could be bound, but so that we could live in our restored purpose that we were created for to bear the fruit of God, not the fruit of sin. You see, while we were bound to Adam, even if we behaved well, we were still ultimately birthing the fruit of death and our eternality would be death. Now that we're bound to Christ, we will have an eternality that will be life. Our fruit will be life, not because of us, but because of Christ. And we are invited because we are part of the kingdom of God, knowing what we know, to participate with God in freedom so that the fruit that is born uh, born out of us is not the fruit of our flesh, the fruit of death, the fruit of destruction, but the fruit of life, the fruit of freedom, the fruit of God. This is why we're tied to God. So if we're tied to God and we're invited to participate in the birthing of the fruit of God because we belong to God, and if he essentially promises uh, progressively if we belong to God, we're gonna birth the fruit of God, how does that work? And how does the law fit into this? Let's take a look. Here it says, For while, verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, that is in Adam, bound to Adam as humans that don't know Jesus as Savior, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions 
aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Here's what that's saying, very simply, and you guys know this, it's not, it's not uh, uh, uncommon, it's, it's not unknown, it is clear as day, right? It's the two-year-old syndrome, right? As human beings in Adam, not tied to Christ, not progressively sanctified or made like Christ, when we hear that there's something we should not or cannot do, what is our first feeling? Why not? And then we ask, why not? And if the explanation is not full of deep and abiding consequences, well, the reason you shouldn't do that is because if you do that, it will cause your entire body to melt slowly into a big mush of stuff. You will die painfully and horribly. And when you die, no one will be able to save you. And if you touch that thing, after you touch it, there is no planet, a thing on planet Earth that can cure you. So go ahead and touch it, please. See, then you might think twice about it. Uh, I mean, I want to touch it. I really do because I, I don't even know if I believe that I'm going to die slowly in a horrible pool of blood. But I'm not going to touch it because I'm scared. But you see... Your sinful nature is aroused, isn't it? Whenever righteousness is presented, it actually first and foremost causes us to go, oh, I want to do that. That's why when you watch movies with a bunch of um, uh, young adults doing crazy stuff that you know are only in the movies, jumping across buildings, secretly you want to be like them, right? Oh, what courage they have to live so recklessly. Yeah, that's, that's the arousal of our sin nature. The law tends to arouse the flesh to behave in, oppo in opposition to the law. So he says, our trouble has, been, has always been that when the external written code governed us, its first impact on us was always to arouse our sinful nature and cause us to want to misbehave. And then the only reason we didn't misbehave is either if the consequences of our misbehavior were apparent or after misbehaving for a progressive stage, the consequences became apparent and then we would beg God to save us from our own insanity. And then as soon as we were saved and fine, we would find the next stupid thing to go do, right? So he's saying that's, that's how it worked when the external written code governed the human race in their flesh. Now watch what happens. But, verse 6, now we are released from the law. That's an insane thing to say. And with a bunch of you in the room that are all in your young adult years, that's the thing I just said that made every chaperone in the room go, please, reverse it, take it away, don't tell them that. You are released from the law. What? That's incredible. Lawlessness, here we come. No, 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 wait. We are not done. You are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. See, what we forget, and that's what Paul dealt with in chapter 5 a lot, in chapter 6 a lot, is that we were once enslaved to sin, and when we behaved in, a, in opposition to God, it produced in us death temporarily and eternally. We have been released from that. Who, the one who once held us captive, do we want to tie ourselves even temporarily on this planet back to that person? No, we don't. So he says, in this case, since we are released from the law, but we do not want to go back and tie ourselves to the production of sin and death, what do we do? Look at this. You are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that, here it is, this is awesome, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Here's what he's saying. 
the law, big picture, that is the righteousness of God, was once an external code. And it led us to a self-perpetuated righteousness to try to live up to righteousness that we were obligated to because we were tied to Adam, but we were trying to be like God, but we could not. The law became our enemy and condemned us and showed us that we are dead in Adam. When Christ transferred us to himself and we belong to the kingdom of God, positionally safe, regardless of behavior, what Paul is saying here is, The law that you are now obligated to, which was once an external code that you had to follow, is now an internal reality that will compel you to follow. It's a whole different ballgame. And not only is it a whole different ballgame, but this ballgame got so awesome that the grace and mercy of God begins to expand in incredible ways in our mind. Here's what he just said. You could not live up to the external code. And even now, though you are in Christ because you are in a body of flesh, that flesh will still be enticed by the external code to jump into foolishness. But I have empowered you with an internal reality that is not a code. It is me, God himself in you. And I will empower you to a place where you will live by righteousness, not because it is an external code that you are conforming to, but because it is an internal internal God who is transforming you. And so here's what he's saying. If you belong to Christ, then your progressive experience in life will be to become less and less enamored by the foolishness and insanity of sin and more and more captivated by the beauty and freedom of God's ways on this planet. And this is our new freedom. So listen to what was written about this and see how this is coming true. Ezekiel, A great prophet of the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36. Listen to what he writes here. This is so incredible. Ezekiel chapter 36, writing about the age to come, not the age in which Ezekiel was in. Verse 25, chapter 36, Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleansliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So there is a declaration of what Jesus was gonna do to positionally move us from children of wrath tied to Adam in the kingdom of death to children of God tied to Christ in the kingdom of grace. You with me? I'm gonna gonna take the old and make it go away and make you brand new. Wow, that's you, that's me if you know Jesus, right? Now watch this, look what happens next. And verse 27 of Ezekiel 36, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Wow. See, this is what Paul's trying to say all along. Once you know Christ and he has positionally shifted you into him, you are stuck with freedom, man. I'm so sorry. You are stuck becoming like Jesus. You are stuck becoming captivated by him. And so what this begins to tell us is this. It begins to tell us that if progressively over my entire life, I continue lawlessly not giving any second thought to sin, then my problem is not an inability to conform to the law. My problem is I probably don't know Jesus. You with me? Because if you know Jesus, the spirit of God is in you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Several of you here, probably a boatload of you are going, oh no, I probably don't know Jesus because yesterday I was super mean to my sister. Or yesterday I had that thought again for the 19th time or I clicked on that computer screen again and I've been trying not to, but I still do. So I must not know Jesus. That's the rest of chapter seven. The rest of chapter seven is gonna go, hold, that's not true. It's not true. 
our behaviors are a continual war zone in which we live against the flesh. You are going to struggle back and forth. Uh, This is not about behavior saying if you behave badly ever, you're not positioning in Christ. It's about your freedom saying once you're in Christ, listen, you're going to be okay. But you also get to participate with God in this great endeavor. So listen to this. Now that the law that is written in us is written on our hearts by the spirit. How do we participate in that? Because you know how to participate with the written code, right? You read it, you do what it says. But how do you participate with the spirit? It's a little more awkward, isn't it? Let's take a look. Watch this. Listen to this. Our participation moves now from conforming to a written code to learning to abide with a person. In Galatians, which Paul wrote actually before Romans, so he wrote this earlier in his journey. Listen to what Galatians says. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Listen to this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do or your flesh want to do. If you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Then he says, now the things of the flesh are, and he goes through a long list of things that we all secretly kind of want to dabble in. And then he goes, he goes down here and he says this, verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now your first thing would be, oh, I get it, Renault. I need to learn to be more patient and learn to be more loving and learn to be more. You can't. I'm so sorry. Because we can't in of ourselves muster these things. If we can pretend for a while, but it's a pretense. How do the fruit of the spirit grow in you when you walk in the spirit? And what does walking in the spirit means? It means abiding or hanging out with him. Look at this verse 25. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying each other. Listen to this. Our participation in the journey with God on this planet into righteousness, our invitation to be a part of our freedom instead of opposing our freedom and constantly living foolishly in sin and not believing God, even though he has positionally rescued us is not to do better with our righteousness. It is to engage better in the disciplines of the faith that lead to intimacy with God. It is to engage in the silence and solitude of listening to God, in the memorization and study of the scriptures, in the beauty of fasting and praying, in the wonder of corporate worship and individual worship, in learning the disciplines of the faith and engaging in the abiding realities of Christ. In John 15, he will talk at length about him being the vine and us being the branches. And when we abide in him and him in us, what do we bear? We bear the fruit of God. When you are living opposed to God, And you know Jesus. Good news. Positionally, you are in Christ and you can't undo that because you are married to him and that was by covenant on his part, not yours. Wow, super cool. If you think that because you positionally belong to Jesus and you have eternal life, so therefore you can behave foolishly and lawlessly because you got freedom, then you're an idiot. You heard me say it. You're an idiot. Because so am I if I do that. Because when we behave in opposition to God, not trusting his ways after he rescued us, then what we are saying is that we enjoy tying ourselves back to a master who loves our destruction. Wow. This is not about right and wrong. It is about freedom and bondage. It is about life and death. So the next time you're about to do something and you know it's wrong, the written code, and you're like, we really shouldn't do this because it's wrong, you know. Change, Change the word. 
because it's not actually relevant that it's right or wrong anymore because you are not bound to the written code anymore. Right and wrong doesn't really matter anymore. Rather say this way. We really shouldn't do that because it produces death and destruction for you, me, and us, and everybody around us, and it's going to be absolutely horrid, even though not immediately. Should we still do it? Well, now that I think about it, if we don't do it and we believe God in this, even though it makes sense to us to do what we want to do, it's going to produce life and freedom for us and everybody around us eventually, being a beautiful picture of redemption where we participate with God and his kingdom. I think we should go with the, with the sin. That sounds awesome. I've always wanted to experience death and destruction myself. How about you? Do you see how it changes the game? When you dabble in the things opposed to God, you don't dabble in what is wrong. You dabble in what is death and what is destruction in what is your end and our end. And even though your eternal life is still settled, praise God, you're an idiot. So don't do that. That's what Paul's trying to say. But remember that you don't do it anymore because it's right, because you are not obligated to the written code. You do it because it's life. You do it because it's freedom. You do it because the spirit of God in you has empowered you to participate with him in righteousness where before you could not when you were tied to Adam. What a joy it is that I'm not only set free for all of eternity because of God's grace, but I'm invited to participate with him in redemption on this planet, not just through external mission like many of you are gonna do this week, but by the internal navigation of righteousness, not because I have to, but because I get to. And that is actually your grandest privilege on this planet, that you get to live righteously, not because you have to, but because you get to. And when you do, it produces life and freedom, not only for you, but for those around you. And when you don't, though it produces temporal death and destruction for you and those around you, it cannot and will not ever undo your position in Christ, to whom you are bound, not because you are awesome, but because he is awesome. Welcome to freedom. Let's pray. God, you are incredible. Really, I mean like mind-blown incredible. You have undone my slavery to Adam, undone my slavery to sin, undone my slavery to the flesh so that my obligation to righteousness through the law is undone so that I am no longer condemned by the law or condemned by my sin, but that you have made me righteous so that the law in its external code is no longer that which reveals my unrighteousness causing me to be condemned, but it is now essentially useless to me in that part of my life. And you, Spirit of God, who have come and empowered me, live within me, sealed me, revealing my righteousness in Christ, and now making me righteous like him, thanks be to God. Thank you too, God, that though the law is no longer of use to me, in what it used to do that you are about in the rest of chapter 7 in the next episode of this first season to reveal to us that the law is still beautiful still has its place though different now that it now reveals our righteousness in Christ and compels us into a tangible space of living your way versus our way that it can be our friend now not our enemy that it sets us free and doesn't condemn us teach us in the weeks to come as we go into the rest of Romans 7 what the beauty of the written code is as the power of the Holy Spirit within us governs us. And then show us at the end of seven as we enter the beautiful space of our experience when we don't do what we want to do and do what we don't want to do and how you deal with us there and then the wonder of your freedom in Romans 8. Therefore, we are not condemned because our position in Christ is secure, not by our work, but by yours. Keep blowing our mind, God. 
keep blowing our mind with our freedom so that when we get to Romans 12 and we enter season two, we will be ready to hear those words. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to you, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Show us the way, God, into our freedom and remind us, as you said in Galatians 5.1, that it was for freedom that you have set us free not to bind us to legalism, not to bind us to the law, not to bind us to a righteousness that is self-propelled, but to set us free and then to live freely in righteousness, not because we have to, but because we get to. You're incredible. We love you, Jesus. Amen.